The most distinctive feature of the U.S. economy since the COVID pandemic has been a return to rates of inflation not seen since the early 1980s. What is inflation and where does it come from? How does finding the proper answer to this question depend on a clear understanding of economics and ultimately on philosophy? What were Ayn Rand's own views on inflation and how do they compare to other economic thinkers' views? Welcome to New Ideal, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. Today, we're going to try to answer some of those questions while we discuss the topic, understanding the roots of the new inflation. My name is Ben Bayer. I'm a fellow at the Ayn Rand Institute. And with me today is Rob Tarr. Rob Tarr has a master's degree in philosophy. And after spending time in a PhD program in economics, he spent 12 years as a portfolio, portfolio manager for a leading investment fund. Welcome, Rob. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Ben. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to start off today by discussing, uh, I think, uh, uh, the most basic question and one that, from what I've read, a lot of people have a lot of confusion about. What is inflation? Uh, the way that you often hear people in the media talk about it, uh, it suggests that all that inflation is, is prices going up. Is that all it is? Or would you say there's more to it than that? Uh, yes, well, I mean, that's a good question. It's um, there's sort of a definitional issue going on here. Uh, it is definitely a point of controversy, especially among a lot of free market economists, which what is the right way to define inflation? Um, you know, in older times, the standard definition was in terms of the money supply. So inflation meant an increase in the money supply or the supply of currency in, in whatever form that was. Um, in more modern times, it's actually shifted. It's more uh, used to denote just an increase in the general price level um, without any necessary tie to an increase in the money supply. Um, now, Louis von Mises, the Austrian economist, he actually lamented this change. And I forget when he wrote this, it might have been in the 40s or 50s, that, uh, that it was starting to change to just mean just the increase in prices. And so he said, now we have the term denoting the consequences and not denoting the cause or you know, one of the major causes, the typical cause of inflation. So he says, how can we talk about the cause when we don't have a term anymore because now it's being used for the consequences. Um, you know, on the other hand, it is a bit of a mouthful to say an increase in the general price level. So, um, you know, we could frame the current issue of, you know, we have a rise in the general price level and then we could ask, is that because of inflation? If you're meaning an increase in the money supply? Or we could frame it, um, we have inflation, meaning an increase in the general price level, and then what's causing that? So, you know, it, it's, I think the fact that so many people use it to denote an increase in the price level, it, it would it'd be more confusing at this point to try to insist that it means an uh, increase in the money supply. Um, but, uh, you know, that said, that, that causal connection needs to be kept better in mind. I think, you know, part of the problem is people have lost an understanding of that. Um, you know, to the point where Milton Friedman famously said money is, or sorry, inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. Um, and by the older definition, that wouldn't have even have been a question. Um, but, you know, it became a, a question and a point to make later on. Um, and, again, you know, stepping back, I guess, if we're talking about an increase in the general level of prices, uh, you know, conceptually, there's three different reasons that could happen. So one is an increase in the money supply, which is sort of the classic uh, cause. Um, 
It can also happen from a decrease in the demand for money. So if people want to hold less money, that would cause prices to rise. Um, and a third reason it can happen is just if there's less supply of real goods. So for whatever reason, we have fewer real goods, but the same amount of money, same supply of money, then the general price level would rise. Um, now that said, you know, typically what we're concerned about, and you know, maybe the term to really insist on is inflationism. So inflationism is the view that the, that as a policy, as a matter of monetary policy, we should be inflating the money supply on a continuous basis because, you know, whatever reasons, because it increases prosperity, because it maintains a stable price level and so on. Um, so that's the real issue and the real uh, concern, I guess. So, you know, often if you have a decrease in money demand, you know, that'll, you know, that can't go on forever. So it's not going to be an ongoing, progressive, continuous increase in prices. Uh, same with supply. So if you know, all of a sudden we have fewer goods, then you know, it's more of a one-off thing typically in case of, for example, war, let's say. Um, but then once it happens, then, you know, it's not gonna, it's not a progressive ongoing kind of thing. So I think what we really care about is, is this inflationism, which is just like a continuous increase in prices. So one of the reasons that I wanted to talk with you today was that you have uh, a unique combination of background expertise. You have a background both in philosophy and in economics. And given that there's been so much discussion of inflation in uh, the news these days, I thought it would be a good opportunity to revisit Ayn Rand's own kind of seminal essay on the topic of inflation, which is also a combination of both philosophic and economic analysis. She wrote uh, this essay, Egalitarianism and Inflation, which appeared in her, originally in her periodical, the Ayn Rand Letter, back in 1974. And uh, I'll later give uh, our viewers more information on how they can listen to a audio version of this, which, which she gave as a lecture. But I wanted to ask you a little bit about what she says in this lecture. And uh, one of the things she does there is to give a distinctively philosophical analysis of the economics of inflation uh, and how it destroys productivity. Uh, as a result, it destroys prosperity. How would you explain her views here and, and uh, her distinctive take on this issue? Sure. Um, yeah, to step back, I think you know, probably the most interesting thing, which uh, fascinated me the first time I went through this essay, is the, the premise that she starts from, the, the way she, you know, what her thesis is, I guess. Um, so she starts by saying that inflation is a man-made scourge um, and that it only happens because people don't understand it. Um, and then she goes on to say that the, um, the, the precondition of inflation is psychopistemological, meaning that it's caused by the fact that there's um, perceptual illusions that happen by the misuse of concepts um, and, uh, and broken conceptual links, she says. So she says that is, you know, we, have, we have inflation because of that. So it's an epistemological explanation or, or investigation, I guess, of, of the causes of inflation. Um, so everything else she goes through is to prove that point, is to show that the reason we have inflation is that we have these broken conceptual links. And as a result, people don't really understand the chain of causation of what's, what's causing inflation. Um, so then she, she starts to go through the concepts uh, step by step starting at a very basic, simple level. Um, and she starts with production. 
So this is important as well. So she starts with the concept of production. So you know, as human beings, we have to produce our means of survival. So what does that mean? Um, well, since the agricultural revolution, she says, um, you know, there's three concepts that we had to have in order to be able to produce uh, at, in, with agriculture. Um, so the first is time. So production takes time. So you plant in the spring, you harvest in the fall. You have to have that concept of, you know, like, it's not just immediate. So I'm doing something now and then I get the benefits much later. Um, the concept of savings. So you have to save something in advance, the seed that you're going to plant. Um, otherwise, you're not going to get any production. And then the third one is production. So just the production is kind of you know, tying those three together. Um, and then I guess she has a, she ties all three of those as well into the concept of stock seed. She says that that integrates all three of those concepts, which is effectively the concept of capital. So the idea of capital is it's, um, I've got something saved, but it's saved for a purpose, which is to produce something further, but produce over time. So it's not just immediate. So the concept of capital kind of locks in all three of those. Um, no, she's, she builds all these concepts up, like she's using very simple examples of agriculture and so on. Um, so you, on one level, it might seem, okay, that's really simple. This, what does that really tell you? But on the other hand, um, her point is, if you keep those concepts really grounded, um, and, and this is really a, a, an application of her distinctive approach to concepts, which is, you know, concepts have to be tied to the reference. You always have to keep in mind the tie to the reference. And then concepts are built up hierarchically, and yet you always have to be able to trace it down to the original reference. Um, and so her ultimate point is, when we get to modern mainstream macroeconomic theories, they've lost that chain down to the reference. Um, so yeah, so she got the concept of production, time savings, concept of stock seed. Um, then she goes on to other concepts like trade, divisional labor, uh, money is the key one that she talks about. So, you know, she stresses, well, what is money? Where does it come from? What does it denote? And the point she wants to stress is that money denotes goods that you produced that you've traded to somebody else for money. So money denotes unproduced, or sorry, unconsumed goods. So goods that have been produced, but not yet consumed. Um, and, uh, and, and this is, she stresses this is the most important tie to keep. And I think later uh, at the end of the essay, she says something like the uh, the one link that was lost that severs everything else from reality was this connection that money denotes produced goods that have already been produced, but not yet consumed. Um, so then she goes on to show what you know, she gives an example of a society of traders that are producing and trading and exchanging for money and so on. And then what happens if somebody comes in and instead of producing something and trading it for money. Instead, they just give you a piece of paper instead of money for your goods. And then instead of taking your goods and using them to produce further so they can trade back, instead they just consume them. So now they've just given you paper, you've given them goods, you've consumed their goods. Or, sorry, they've consumed your goods. Um, now that's gonna push prices up without contributing any more supply, any more real goods. Um, and if that goes on, you know, it can't go on forever. Eventually, you run out of goods, you run out of uh, things to supply, or, or sorry, um, things to, you run out of things to, uh, 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 to consume. And, uh, and so the whole scheme basically collapses at that, at that point. So she says this is the basic pattern, the basic essence of how 
of, of what's happening when we have inflation. So I guess one thing I want to stress too is just that it's very interesting to me that she, I mean, this is so distinctive to her approach is that she, she hits it on a level of concepts, you know, so she doesn't go out talking about Keynesian theories and discussing all the intricacies of the theories and so on. Um, instead, she attacks it as a level of concepts. So she says, you know, it's, it's not even a case of, um, you know, that the theories are wrong, it's that the concepts are wrong. They don't even have the right concepts. They don't have them tied properly to reality. And if you do, you know, so you may not know anything else about economics or you may not be able to untangle all the confusions in Keynesianism. But if you keep your concepts tied to reality in the way she's outlined, then you're you're going to think there's something seriously wrong with Keynesianism. You're not going to be able to, you're not going to fall for it for one. Um, but also, um, you know, you're, you're going to, you're, you're you're going to see that it's it can't be right, I guess, is the way to put it. So you may not be able to untangle all the confusions, all the intricacies and so on, but you will know because of the way you hold the concepts that it can't be right. So you, you had mentioned that one of the things you found distinctive about this approach was how she took it that critical concepts that contemporary economists are using have become unmoored from reality. And you mentioned in particular the concept of money. Uh, so this is maybe a good way to, to segue to my next question because you mentioned in her view, the, the basic referent to the concept money is unconsumed goods that have been produced. And I remember that at one point in the essay, she contrasts that with uh, another view that is sometimes held about what the meaning of money is. She says it's usually thought of as a medium of exchange and of course, while she grants that it is, she points out that it's still fundamentally a store of value in the way that you've just exp explained. So uh, could you say more about how her view here of the meaning of money uh, contrasts with the, the view held by other economists? And there might be other um, major contrasts in the way that she thinks about some of these key economic concepts that you might want to discuss. How does her view compare to these uh, Keynesians that you've mentioned, but also perhaps to some of the other uh, free market oriented economists like uh, monet monetarists and Austrians. Uh, sure. Yeah. So, I mean, starting with Keynesians, I guess, um, you know, just to go back a little bit into the history of it, when, when Keynes came out with his theories in the 1930s, it was sort of the, uh, the start of macroeconomics as a separate discipline. So before that, there wasn't really any separation between microeconomics and macroeconomics. It was more just economics. Um, but when Keynes came up with his theories, um, which were all done in terms of aggregates, so there's aggregate demand and aggregate supply, aggregate consumption, aggregate investment, and so on. Um, so all his theories are conducted in, in terms of these floating aggregates. Um, and it became a question, even among Keynesian economists, like, well, how does this tie to microeconomics? And they admitted that it doesn't. Um, so in effect, you know, from Ayn Rand's point of view, that would be basically admitting that they're floating concepts, that they can't tie these to reference, uh, you know, that they denote at the, at the perceptual level. Um, so, but as a result, so Keynes whole theory, in contrast to the way Ayn Rand presents it in egalitarianism and inflation. So she starts with production, Keynes starts with consumption. So for Ayn Rand, production is the, the motor of the economy, the starting point, the first cause. Uh, for Keynes, it's consumption. Consumption is the starting point and the motor and the first cause in the economy. Um, and so consumption, you're in effect spending. And then how do you 
you know, so the problem for Keynes is there will sometimes be cases where people don't spend enough, therefore businesses aren't having enough revenue, then they will cut the production and therefore we'll have recession or depression or, or whatever. So they'll, they'll cut their production and they'll lay people off, we'll have unemployment, et cetera. And so his, his um, remedy is, well, we need more consumption. So we need more spending and spending is in terms of money. You know, so we just need to get money into the hands of the consumers and then this will allegedly set the whole productive process in motion. Um, now, going back to Ayn Rand, now, if you hold the concept she delineated you know, firmly in mind, the idea that consumption causes production, you know, given the example she's given and the way she's tied them very tightly to you know, the perceptual level, that will seem ludicrous to you. Like, how could it be that you consume first and then somehow that causes production to happen later? Um, which she's very clear that, well, you know, agriculture is the very clear case. Well, you have to produce first and then you consume. If you consume your stock seed, then there will be no production. Um, now, so for Keynes, um, he, the whole concept of capital basically dropped out of economics at this point. And to this day, um, mainstream macroeconomists, they don't really have a theory of capital. So, and they don't really think it's necessary. It doesn't really fit. There's no place for it in their theory. Um, I had a quote from Mises, actually, you know, where I put that. But he, uh, even, he, he expressed it pretty clearly. He said that, uh, I'll look that up later. But uh, he's like, basically, the essence of Keynesianism is that it has no appreciation whatsoever for the role of capital and savings in the economy. Um, so, you know, in effect, I think validating the idea that for Keynes, yet this idea of unproduced goods is being necessary, you know, as being what's denoted by money and by capital, um, that just drops out of the theory. That's just not relevant, not necessary, not pertinent, I guess, to the way he's doing economic theory. Before we go on to talk about some of those other schools, you, uh, you've just stressed now that the, the concept of savings doesn't have a very important role in Keynesian economics. How does that come up in Keynesian's approaches to the issue of inflation or the expansion of the monetary supply? Um, I mean, in effect, what happens is that they, they end up, um, you know, all the, all the programs and policies, I guess, that they advocate, which is get spending, you get consumer spending, so get money into the hands of consumers so they can spend. Um, in effect, what those amount to is somehow taking capital or taking the stock seed, giving it to the consumers so they can spend it now. Um, so, yeah, so I mean, one way Ludwig von Mises put it, uh, he said, it's, it's as if somebody, a householder decided to burn his furniture in the fireplace to produce heat and then was delighted that he'd found a new source of heating his home. Um, you know, so you're taking capital, which is in savings, which is being used for productive purposes. Now you're giving it to people to consume, in effect. And this is insofar as the expansion of the money supply acts as a kind of tax on savings. It's, it, the government doesn't actually go in there and take uh, anything out of your account. It just creates money that ends up producing the value of what you've saved. Is that right? Uh, that's correct. Yes, exactly. Yep. Yep. Which is which is possible to do when you don't actually get to save something that is of uh, uh, objective value if you don't if you don't get to save gold or something like that. Uh, that's right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. 
Okay, so then say more about free market economists' approach to uh, these concepts of, of money and inflation and savings and how they compare to RANDs. Uh, sure. So, I mean, if you take the monetarists under Milton Friedman, um, you know, they, to a large extent, adopted the framework of the Keynesians. So they didn't question the basic framework, and it was more, there's a quote at one point, Friedman saying, uh, we're all Keynesians now which you know, he didn't mean that he accepted Keynes' theory in all its details, but more just that way of doing economics was accepted. Um, and so for Friedman and other monetarists, it came, became more just about arguing over some of the details of the theories, so like some of the parameters, like, you know, will things, have, will things really happen in the long run or will they adjust quicker? You know, it's like if the government does X, then if people figure out that the government's doing X, will they react sooner and then mitigate what the government's doing? Therefore, Keynesian policies may not be effective. Those were the kind of arguments that the the, uh, the monetarists were making. Um, now, I mean, the one uh, incredibly valuable thing that Friedman did was he, he stressed the idea that inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. So, you know, we should care about the money supply. We should monitor it. And if we have an inflation problem, which we did in the 1970s, that we needed to look to inflation of the money supply to to fix that. Um, so that, uh, that actually impacted all the way up to the political level into the Federal Reserve. Uh, so Paul Volcker was appointed to the Federal Reserve and he took to heart the monetarist views. And so he implemented a policy where the Federal Reserve would start tracking the money supply on a weekly basis. And then they would adjust interest rates to try to keep the money supply not growing too quickly, keep it low. In order to bring inflation down, um, that works. That that you know did a tremendous. Uh, he did a, a, a great job in terms of bringing inflation down, or you know the price increases down. If I remember correctly from my undergraduate um, economics classes, which are now many years ago, uh, perhaps another respect in which Friedman uh, shared certain assumptions uh, with the Keynesians is that even though he saw that inflation was a monetary phenomenon, he was nonetheless still on board with the basic policy apparatus that the Keynesians uh, advocated insofar as he thought there should be a, a Federal Reserve that had control over the money supply. He just thought that it should only grow it by a very small margin every year. Perhaps I think it sh he, he thought it should be run by a computer or something like that and, and just not change. Uh, very rapidly. Is that is my memory correct? Is that what Friedman? Uh, that is correct. Yes. Yeah. So that is another sense in which he accepted the the general framework. Um, so, yeah. And so and, and, you know, and he definitely bought into the idea to some extent too that you know consumption spending can be a problem that you know, we need to worry about whether consumers are spending enough and so on. Um, and that that was part of I think. That's underlay part of why he thought we should be increasing the money supply at a steady rate, let's say like 2% per year kind of thing um, over time, just to make sure that the economy had enough money to you know, have, keep this spending cycle going. So you've already mentioned Mises somewhat in connection with this topic. Uh, how do his views on inflation uh, differ from some of these other economists and, and compared to Rand's? Likewise for the other Austrians. Um, sure. Yeah, I mean, I guess two main points to stress is that 
uh, he, your, the Austrians definitely have much more of a primacy of production view, so they start with production rather than consumption, congruent with Ayn Rand. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, so, so they definitely don't buy into the idea that consumption is what is the, the first cause or the motor that, that uh, you know, gets the economy going and keeps it going. Um, now, ways in which von Mises um, disagreed with the monetarists, for example, was you know, the Austrians don't at all take this aggregate viewpoint where you have these disconnected aggregates that affect each other and have causal connections to each other. So for the Austrians, everything is tied down to individual choices, individual actions, uh, individual ideas. So um, with the idea of um, inflation, for example, so there's there's the famous equation of exchange, which the monetarists use, and it's not unique to them, but they emphasized it. So it's the, the formula is MV equals PQ. So you might have come across that in a intro econ course. So the idea is M is the money supply, V is the velocity. So money supply times velocity equals the price level times, or prices times the quantity of goods. Um, so the supply money versus, you know, times how many times it's spent equals the prices and the quantity of goods. Um, so Friedman emphasized this, and then he thought velocity would be constant, therefore, um, the only thing we have to worry about is money supply increasing. Um, now Mises, you know, he accepts it in a general sense, the quantity theory, like it's, it is an important point that if you increase money supply a lot and continuously, you will have a, a large increase in prices. Um, but what he doesn't accept is this whole aggregate perspective to it. Um, and where it really comes, where it really pays off, I guess, is, uh, um, the point that one Mises stresses is the non-neutrality of money. So the monetarists like Friedman think that money is or can be neutral. So the, the uh, example that Friedman gives is a helicopter. So if we had a helicopter that just flew around and threw cash out the window and doubled everybody's holdings of, of money, then the price level would double. Um, and I mean, that's what the equation of exchange basically implies. So by Mises thinks that's not the right way to think about it and there's you know, that will lead you down some dangerous paths um so for the fund Mises, the money always enters the economy at a certain point and then gradually works its way through the economy so it's affecting different prices at different times and that will cause real distortions in production and that's sort of the, the groundwork and the genesis i guess of ultimately his business cycle theory that's um you know so it's not it's not just that we have to worry about the supply of money increasing and that increases prices. We have to worry about the fact that it causes real distortions through the economy as the money works its way through the economy. So with some of these basic philosophical concepts of economics clarified, as I think uh, you've helped us do now, how what's the best way to measure inflation in a given economy? Now, I, I see there's question of do you, do you define inflation as the general rise in prices or as the uh, as the actual expansion of the money supply? Uh, maybe you can answer it for both of those. Right. Yes, I was going to say it's um, difficult for in both cases. So, um, you know, von Mises actually has a lengthy critique of the whole idea that you can create an index of prices. And you know, there's just so many problems with trying to do that. So you 
um, you need to have some kind of sample average basket that people spend on. And then you monitor the prices of those goods over time, uh, which is what the CPI, the consumer price index is, which is probably the most popular thing that people look at to try to measure inflation. But I mean, there's so many problems with that because there's no such thing as the average consumer who buys the average basket. So, you know, your experience of inflation might be different from my experience of inflation, depending on the different things we buy. Um, and people change what they buy over time too. So especially as prices change. So you might buy more of one thing and less of another thing because prices went up on this thing and not as much on this thing, so on. Um, so Mises thought it was ludicrous to try to create a new price index. Um, now, in a, in a broad sense, it does give you some sense. So, you know, if inflation, like if price increases are 10% versus 1%, then yes, I mean, the CPI is going to be a lot bigger versus a lot smaller. Um, but the idea that you can measure CPI as a tool of monetary policy, I think, is what von Mises thinks is you know, ridiculous, which is what they do. So the whole one of the mandates of the Federal Reserve is to keep inflation low. Um, so right now they're targeted at 2% as a long-term target. Um, but, uh, you know, so, but the idea that if the CPI says it's 1% and then the next year says it's 3%, like those kinds of fine-tuned variations just, you know, that, that's ludicrous to think that a, you could have a price index that would pick that up with any reliability. Um, now, CPI is the main one. There's another indicator of inflation, the PCE, uh, produce, um, uh, escaping me right now the exact name for it. the pc is what the federal reserve uses for their measure of inflation so they actually want uh is much more closely than the cpi as a measure of uh, how much they think prices are increasing um the personal consumption expenditure yes, price index. expenditures thank you yes yep yep um now turning to money supply same thing there's like a huge controversy about how to measure money supply um at the most basic level it's currency so just cash in hands but um, you know, economists quickly found that that is not reliably correlated to price increases. And in fact, you can have cases where cash in hand goes down and if, you know, price increases go up um, you know, because people are getting rid of their cash to put it into real goods or into you know, savings accounts where they're earning interest and so on. Um, so right now, there's, there's three basic measures of money supply that economists use. There's M1, M2, M3. And, you know, M1 is cash in hand plus checking accounts. M2 is that plus savings accounts and, you know, small uh, money market, retail money market funds. Uh, M3 is you add in your know, larger savings accounts and money market funds. Uh, some people have an M4. Some people have an M5. There's an MZM, which is supposed to be money of zero maturity. Um, so there's huge controversy about what's the right way to even measure money supply. So, you know, again, if you're going to use that as a policy tool, so if you're going to target money supply and adjust interest rates or the Federal Reserve will adjust interest rates based on what money supply is doing, well, which one do you use and how reliable is that? Um, and there's been controversy over time. So when Paul Volcker targeted M1 uh, to bring price increases down, bring inflation down, that worked. That worked well. And there seemed to be a correlation between M1 and prices at that time. In the 80s, that changed. So there stopped being a correlation between M1 and inflation. Um, so they switched to M2, but then there stopped being a correlation between M2 and inflation, at least at these lower levels of inflation. You know, if, if you had 10, 20, 30 percent inflation, then there would be definitely correlation. But if you're talking, you know, two, three, four, five percent, there seemed to not be a correlation between 
these money supply figures anymore and the rates of inflation that we would see. Um, so the Federal Reserve actually abandoned using money supply in the, uh, in the late 80s. And so they, they stopped even publishing their targets for money supply, I think, in 2000. Um, so, but and, and, you know, what counts as money, that's a, that's a controversial question. Um, and that changes over time as well. So, you know, money is what you use for um, making transactions or for, um, you know, you might in your, in your savings, you have a certain amount of money or a certain amount of cash as opposed to stocks or bonds or whatever. Um, but with financial innovation, you know, where you put that, where you hold that changes. So like when money market funds came into vogue in the, uh, in the eighties, but, uh, you know, then that became more important than checking accounts and savings accounts. Um, you know, now it's to the point where you can write checks on your brokerage account. So, you know, in some sense, the balances in your brokerage account count as money because you can draw upon those for, for spending and making transactions and so on. But, you know, so how do you capture all those things into a single measure is, is a really tricky task. So clearly the reason we're talking about this issue right now, and today is March 19th, 2022, is there's a lot of discussion of the new inflation that's happening. I assume that a big part of the reason there's this discussion is because the CPI, the Consumer Price Index, has been uh, setting record levels. Last I heard, I think, was 7.9% for the last right, yeah. quarter, I believe. Uh, do you agree that uh, there is a there is a, a serious inflation problem in, in, in the respective CPI that we're dealing with right now? Uh, yes. I mean, a serious problem with increases in prices, yes. Um, you know, the, as the cause of that increase in prices, though, that's more controversial topic, I guess, of what is the cause of it? How serious is that? Is it an ongoing problem? I guess it would be the biggest question. Well, that is the biggest question that I wanted to then get to next. I mean, what do you think is uh, the cause of the, the current rise in the level of prices? I've, I've seen some of this controversy. I've seen the uh, Federal Reserve chairman quoted as saying that he doesn't think it has anything to do with the money supply. Uh, I've I've heard it said that it's it's just an issue with the supply chain problems. Uh, but then I've also heard that it's the stimulus payments from the, the, the Paycheck Protection Program and, and related pandemic uh, uh, payments that were given out. So and maybe part of the answer is that it's that it's all of these things. But I, I'd be very curious to hear what you think. Yeah, I mean, I think it is a combination of all of those things. Um, you know, one tricky part of discussing current events like this is, you know, economic principles can be very clear, but then, you know, what's the confluence of how all these interweaving causal factors interact? You know, that can be very tricky to sort out. So, um, you know, the same way, that, you know, the principles of physics are very clear, but how all those play out in any episode of weather, like how you predict the weather, you know, that can be incredibly complex to sort out. Um, so I think in the, in the case of uh, the increase in prices, there's definitely a supply issue. So the supply chains got all fouled up with the lockdowns. Um, so we have seen a lot of cases where there's shortages. Um, you know, one, one key example is uh, microchips. So there's a shortage of microchips now. Um, that's impacting the production of cars. So new car production is a lot lower than it would be otherwise. And there's all kinds of uh, parking lots full of new cars waiting for microchips before they can be sent off. 
Um, so that's raised the price of new cars. Um, it actually raised the price of used cars even more because people can't get the new cars they want. So they've been bidding up the price of used cars. Um, and if you, if you look through the CPI figures over the last year, used cars has actually been the single biggest component of increasing the CPI. Um, now that I think will be temporary. That will come back down. Um, eventually they'll get the shortages sorted out. They'll produce more microchips. We'll have more production of cars. People won't bid up used cars. So that kind of thing, I think, definitely is a temporary problem. That's not a long-term problem. Um, and you can multiply that over all kinds of other industries as well. Um, that as people try to you know, reformulate their supply chains, figure out where they're going to get the supplies they need. Um, in some cases, production that was done overseas is now being done back in the U.S., et cetera, et cetera. Um, so eventually that will heal and that will get all sorted out and then supply will increase and then we'll stop seeing these increases in prices. Um, so that's, that's point number one. Um, point number two is with the fiscal stimulus, like the stimulus checks. So that is a case where the government is issuing bonds, the Federal Reserve is buying them, and then the government is taking that money and giving it to consumers to hopefully spend, I guess, is what they want them to do. Um, now, that, that, that does definitely have an impact on CPI as calculated. So if you give everybody $2,000 and they go and spend it, then and supply hasn't changed or even has gone down, that will push prices up. Um, so as measured by CPI, that's definitely a factor. Um, now, it's a question whether if that stopped, we're not doing that anymore. So that seems like that probably will not be an ongoing factor going forward. Um, the third factor, an increase in the money supply in general, the, you know, so the Federal Reserve has been doing quantitative easing. So they, they've been buying treasury bonds and T-bills and so on for you know, most of the last 10 years. Um, so they have been increasing the, uh, the bank reserves. We haven't seen that translate into bank lending that much though uh, over the last 10 years. And I think that's the reason why we haven't seen price increases from this massive uh, increase in the Federal Reserve's balance sheet. Um, but uh, in the last year or two, we have started to see bank lending tick up and that is a real increase in the money supply and that will have real effects on prices. So that would be the thing that I would keep my eye on. If that continues, then we could have a, a serious ongoing inflation problem. Uh, if it doesn't, then it could be well true that it was just a transitory thing because of the pandemic that we, you know, we have these huge price increases, but then they're going to moderate going forward. Um, oh, I guess one more wild card is we have the Russian invasion of Ukraine in the last month. So that, uh, that's following up supply chains. That's causing commodity prices to spike. Um, you know, oil went from under $100 a barrel to as much as $130 a barrel, I think. People are seeing in gas prices, of course. Um, so I think in the short term, that's still going to feed into higher CPI inflation. So we're going to see CPI increase for another few months just because those have not been fully reflected. Um, but then how far that goes, will that be a continuous ongoing increase in commodity prices? I mean, I don't think so for the long term, no. So I mean, the thing, the only thing that could cause the you know, continuous progressive ongoing increases in prices is if bank lending continues to increase at a, uh, at a large rate. You've said a few times now, you've, you've mentioned the, the role of the Federal Reserve in buying and selling bonds. 
in uh, the manipulation of the money supply. And that's something I want to pause on because I think the way the kind of stereotype that people have about the way the money supply expands is it, the government prints paper currency and, and you know, maybe drops it from a helicopter. Yeah. And that, that stereotype was even at work, I thought, in a, in a recent article uh, by Paul Krugman, of all people, who's the Nobel laureate, who's got a columns for the New York Times, where he challenges the idea that there's this dramatic expansion in the supply of money by simply looking at this narrowest definition of the money supply in terms of actual physical currency on hand, and he notes that it hasn't changed that much. But uh, I'd like to hear more from you about how how the government actually does manipulate the money supply, because I, I'm pretty sure it involves more than simply printing physical currency. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, if, if anything, physical currency is not part of monetary policy anymore. So they don't. That's not something that they uh, try to control or try to monitor uh, to a large extent. Um, so I mean, it is a it is a component of money supply. But there's uh, the uh, odd fact that something like seventy five percent of cash U.S. dollars circulate outside of the U.S. So, you know, to the extent that happens, that cash is not impacting prices in the U.S. Um, so what the Federal Reserve is focused on is bank reserves. And um, that's the only thing they can really manipulate in order to set the interest rate. Um, it, so what they end up doing is they will go to uh, investment dealers and they will buy treasury securities, typically, although in the last 10 years, they've started buying all kinds of stuff, including corporate bonds and even high yield bonds and so on. But the typical is they would buy treasury securities. Um, so now the, the Fed owns these treasury securities and now they've credited the investment dealer with a deposit at the Federal Reserve, which in effect creates bank reserves. So now um, the more reserves are out there, the so the banks have a mandate that they can only lend out um, to a certain uh, multiple of the reserves. So if they lend out $100, um, then they have to keep 10% reserves, let's say, against that $100 loan. So now if the Federal Reserve increases the amount of reserves in the banking system, banks can lend out more. So it allows them to lend out more. Um, so the, I guess the, the, the issue is the Fed cannot force banks to lend out more. So they can provide more reserves, but then it's up to the banks to decide to lend it more based on that increase of reserves. Um, so there is an issue where the Fed wants you know, the, to increase the money supply and lower interest rates, and they think they're doing it by increasing reserves, but then banks don't actually increase lending. Um, and they have a term for this, they call this pushing on a string. So the Fed is you know, trying to um, liquefy the economy or trying to add stimulus to the economy, monetary stimulus. Um, but all they can do is get the reserves out there if the banks don't lend, the, you know, the Fed's hands are kind of tied. We often hear about the Fed changing interest rates, raising or lowering them, but tell me if this uh, is the correct understanding. There is only a certain sort of interest rate that the Fed can directly manipulate, and when it buys or sells bonds, what it's doing is targeting a certain rate in a market by by increasing or decreasing the money supply. And that's not something that it can do directly. It has to depend upon lending behavior and things like that. Is that right? Uh, that's right, yeah. So the, the key rate that they target is the, called the federal funds rate. 
And that actually is the rate for bank reserves. So the reserves I've just been describing that the Federal Reserve can create, um, there's actually a market between banks for those reserves. So if you're Citigroup and then you've just had a whole bunch of withdrawals and so now your reserves have gone down at the Federal Reserve, so you don't have enough reserves to support the amount of loans you have, um, then you, you need to replace that that you know, same day overnight, basically. So what you can do, though, is you can go to Bank of America and say, hey, you've got excess reserves. I want to borrow them from you tonight so that we can meet our reserve ratios. Um, and so the interest rate they would pay is the federal funds rate. And that's the rate that the Fed wants to keep within certain limits. So, I mean, for the last, what is it now, three years, I guess, it's been zero to 0.25%. Um, they just raised it last week. So now it's going to be 0.25 to 0.5% is the target range. Um, so, they, so the Fed will do open market operations, it's called, on a daily basis to try to keep the interest rates within that level. So if too many banks need reserves overnight, the Fed will add reserves. If too many banks have reserves and are trying to offer them to be loaned overnight, then the Fed will take reserves out of the system to keep it within that target range. Um, so and this is the most important interest rate in the economy in the sense that you know, banks will not loan money unless they can get at least that amount or higher. You know, so if they can loan it to another bank for 0.5%, they're not going to issue a loan for less than 0.5%. Um, so basically, it, it, it cascades through the rest of the economy and the interest rates on everything else in the economy. So listening to that story, someone might think, well, so uh, it does sound like there are some kind of market forces at work, and yet... I think what's underappreciated, you, you referenced open market operations or what they call open market operations. But tell me again if my understanding is correct, that when it comes time for the Fed to actually buy bonds in order to add reserves to these banks' balances, that, that that's something that's in effect created by magic, that, that the, the Fed simply has the legal power to buy bonds with money that it creates out of whole cloth and not necessarily uh, with printing presses, but uh, just by changing figures on an, an account somewhere. Yes, that's right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that is, that is their fundamental power. Um, as I mentioned, that, you know, that, does, that allows banks to increase the money supply by lending more, but can't force banks to do it. Um, but, you know, there is a, this other issue of that it does seem to be impacting the financial markets. So um, it was Ben Bernanke that initiated so-called quantitative easing back in 2012, 13, I forget the exact date. Um, so his idea was, okay, we've already lowered interest rates to zero, the economy's not recovering, so let's do something else now. So let's just buy a massive amount of bonds, increase reserves in the banking system, and that will you know, supposedly help the economy. Um, there's still a lot of controversy among economists of, of why that would help or what the transmission mechanism would be, like why that, um, well, it increased asset prices for sure. Like the stock market reacted to it, um, uh, bond markets reacted to it and so on. Um, and the economy did start to go better, or, you know, at least apparently go better after that. Um, economists can't really agree on why that would be the case because it, it doesn't increase the money supply unless banks start to lend more, which wasn't really happening at that time. Um, so, yeah, so it's still an unresolved 
Well, and, and I guess a lot of uh, free market economists thought, okay, well, the, the Fed's doing this massive purchasing of treasury bonds. That's got to cause inflation or got to cause uh, increased prices, um, which I thought too at the time. Um, and yet it had not over the period of 10 years. Um, so it's a question too, like why did it not impact prices more? Um, I mentioned the fact that banks did not increase their lending as much. So that's definitely part of it. But you would think there's got to be some kind of impact if the, if the, uh, if the Fed's buying this massive amount of treasury bonds. Did anything that the Fed did after the financial crisis include devising new mechanisms to add uh, fiat money into the economy? Besides, did, did they? I've heard, for example, about their buying assets, not just bonds. Yeah, I mean, they they can theoretically buy anything. Um, although I think they're limited by what Congress allows them to buy. Um, but you know, just in terms of economic theory. Of a, you know, how a central bank operates, they could theoretically buy anything and monetize it and add money to the economy. Um, and some central banks do that. So Japan, their central bank has bought something like 10% of their stock market now. So it's owned by the, uh, the Bank of Japan. Um, Swiss National Bank too, which used to stand for monetary orthodoxy, like as good as gold, the Swiss franc was as good as gold. Um, the Swiss National Bank has actually bought a big chunk of US stocks. So the S&P 500. So um, Apple stock, you know, a big chunk of Apple stock is owned by the Swiss National Bank, which is the backing for the Swiss franc right now. Right now. Um, so uh, now the Federal Reserve, I, they haven't bought any stocks at this point. They bought, um, I think they've only bought bonds so far, but they started buying corporate bonds, high yield bonds. There were some loans I think they were making as well, but I think it was always, it was always uh, debt. It was never that they bought actual assets like stocks. Yeah. You talked about how you can account for the current general rise in prices, both by looking at the supply chain problems and also by looking at uh, such things as stimulus payments. But can you say anything about how these different manipulations by the Federal Reserve, uh, by expanding various money supplies, by buying assets and stocks, how that might have actually impacted our productive capacity, making things like the supply chain problems that we're having right now uh, more likely. And so that even if they are not directly caused by uh, monetary expansion, they might, uh, there might be an indirect effect there. Uh, yes. Um, you know, I guess one thing, just look at the stimulus payments. So the idea was the very Keynesian idea, let's get money into the hands of consumers, they'll spend it, that will spark a business boom, allegedly. Um, you know, I think we've seen it spark more price increases than a business. Boom. So I mean, I think that's evidence for one of the idea that primacy of consumption is not right, primacy of production is right. Um, from another level, it's it can be tricky to trace out exactly where the capital consumption happens. So when Ayn Rand's example, it's very clear that you've got farmers with stock seed, and then if they consume some of the, you know, the, the guy who's buying with paper money, buys some of the stock seed and consumes it. So it's literally been consumed. Um, how that works out in a complex industrial society, it does, I think, but how to trace that, I think takes more deeper economic theory. Um, so one of the ways that it happens and that Ludwig von Mises traces it out is part of his business cycle theory, which is that um, when the Fed's printing money, manipulating interest rates, it gives false signals to businessmen 
about what actually will be productive. So, for example, lowering interest rates makes it seem like, oh, you can invest for longer periods of time and you can afford to borrow more capital you know, to build more factories and buy more tools and so on. Um, so you've invested that, but then when it turns out that interest rates that low were not sustainable and interest rates go back up, then it shows, oh, actually, these factories are now unprofitable. And so you've wasted capital, you've consumed capital by building these factories. Um, so it's still there, it's still this issue of capital consumption, but it's a more complex chain of causality, I guess, to, to figure that out. So what are some responses that are being proposed? What do we think about some of the responses that are being proposed uh, solutions to the current inflation? I have now heard talk again of price controls, for instance. Uh, I had thought that economists decided that price controls were hopelessly inadequate and destructive as of the 1970s, but it seems like there is there's now a return to talking about them. Did they not learn their lesson or do they think they've, they've learned something new that I don't know about? Yes, you know, there's one economist in particular who wrote an article a few weeks ago, I forget her name, but she's at a, at a major university. Um, but uh, on the plus side, even Paul Krugman wrote on Twitter about that article. He said, you know, that's idiotic or that's stupid or something. Pretty, he used fairly strong terms. So I thought that was promising that um, if Paul Krugman hasn't bought into it, then probably this is not going to go very far. Um, but uh, yeah, but it's, I'm shaking my head too. It seems like all these bad ideas from the past are starting to raise their heads uh, uh, and come back into, uh, come back into popular discussions. Um, yeah, price controls would be a disaster. They would be an utter disaster. Uh, so they're an attempt to deal with the alleged symptoms, which is an increase in prices, while ignoring the causes and end up just making everything much worse. So, um, you know, the essence of production in a complex division of labor economy, um, in von Mises' theories, in his terms, is economic calculation. So how do we produce? Well, you look at the price system and then you form your plans and then you calculate what would be valuable, what would produce profits, and then you execute your plans based on that those economic calculations. Um, now, if you start messing with those prices, if you start capping those prices or controlling those prices, then that messes up everybody's calculations of what's valuable to do and what's profitable to do and so on. Um, and, you know, classically just leads to shortages. So some things that, you know, you would be willing to pay X, but you're not allowed to. So um, now you just can't get it because at the lower price, more people demand it and they've already, they've already bought it. So, um, you know, we tried price controls in 1971, I think it was, with Nixon, and, you know, predictable results of disastrous uh, shortages and so on, they were quickly abandoned. Um, so, yes, I'm, I'm uh, amazed that idea is popping up again, but fortunately, I don't think it's getting much currency on economists. Another idea I've heard, and this has come from both the current administration, the Biden administration, and also I think from Elizabeth Warren, is is to blame corporations' greed for uh, price controls, and in, in particular to blame allegedly quote-unquote monopolistic behavior, and that uh, if we want to bring prices down, we need to, uh, I guess, deploy more antitrust action, antitrust lawsuits, uh, to stop the collusion that is resulting in higher prices. Any reactions to this proposal? Yeah, well, corporate greed, that, um, 
I mean, that just makes me shake my head. That just seems like people with a comic book understanding of economics and business um, give that level of understanding to make that kind of charge. Um, so the idea that corporations can just set prices wherever they feel like because they're greedy, you know, that just flies in the face of all economic theory. Um, you know, let alone the question of, you know, why did they all suddenly get greedy now? Like if they're greedy, why didn't they do this 10 years ago or five years ago? Um, and then when prices go down, is that because they got less greedy? They, you know, they became magnanimous all of a sudden and said, hey, let's lower prices for consumers. Um, so I think that's just a ludicrous charge. And then uh, you know, the, the, the kinds of remedies would be, well, let's tax corporate profits. Is that a windfall tax? So that we, you know, as a one-time thing, or maybe a couple of years, we take a bigger chunk of corporate profits. Um, you know, again, that just worsens whatever distortions are happening. Um, you know, so companies are trying to adjust their productive activities for all this, um, you know, everything that's been going on in the last few years, lockdowns and now the Russian invasion and so on. And profits basically are part of how they do that adjustment. So it's the signal of how they need to adjust. And it gives them the capital that allows them to make these adjustments. Um, so, yeah, so taxing those would just, uh, just add to all the problems we have. Um, in terms of monopoly charges, um, yeah, that's a longstanding uh, economic issue, I guess, or charge among anti-capitalist economists is that companies have monopoly power that allows them to raise prices more than they would in the free market, et cetera, et cetera, or in the more competitive market. Um, you know, again, I think you have the same issue of, well, if that's true, why now? Like, why, why are all of a sudden all these companies exercising their monopoly power now to raise prices and they didn't do that five years ago or 10 years ago or 20 years ago? Um, and, uh, you know, again, the remedy is, oh, we have to either punish them or break them up or, you know, tax them for their excess profits. But the same thing with the, uh, what I mentioned before is that that's just going to make it harder for companies to adjust their production to all the changes that have happened in the last few years. Why are any of these proposals taken seriously? Is it because even though what they all have in common with each other is further ways of restricting and destroying the productive capacity. Is it that they they allow for, in effect, short-term redistribution, which benefits certain classes of society uh, in the short term without looking to the long term? I, I think that's effectively right. So, I mean, partly it's just the issue of altruism versus selfishness, which is a your perennial topic for Ayn Rand Institute, of course. Um, so the idea that, oh, these people are making a lot of money in times of trouble, you know, they're selfish and therefore they should be punished. You know, I think that's kind of an underlying motivation. Um, but uh, yeah, but also I think it is what you just mentioned, which is which goes back to what we were discussing at the beginning, Ayn Rand's views on you know, what is the precondition for inflation. These, um, broken conceptual chains and people not seeing how concepts connect to the reference. So people do just see sort of the surface level and they think, oh, let's fix that without seeing the deeper causal connections, the deeper conceptual connections. Um, so, and actually, you know, Henry Hazlitt, who wrote the book Economics in One Lesson, he, he makes kind of a similar point to Ayn Rand, but at a much more superficial level, of course. So economics in one lesson, his one lesson is you can't just look at the effects of policies on one group in the short term. You have to look at the effects of policies on all groups over the long term. 
So basically what he's arguing for is, you know, you can't just take a perceptual level focus. You have to take a much more conceptual level focus and see, you know, what are the causal connections for a much more abstract scope. And that relates also to the, the way in which it matters what the inflated currency is being used for, right? Because if it's being used on consumption and consumption, which doesn't aid someone, some further process of production, then it's going to be much more destructive. But I suppose that inflated currency could also be used by producers, in which case it will be less destructive. And we just, it's hard to track the difference. It is. Yes, definitely. There is this issue of forced savings, which um, in some episodes of inflation, depending how the money enters the economy and where it flows, it can amount to uh, reducing consumption among uh, consumers uh, and actually increasing the capital of companies. Um, so Mises calls it forced saving. I think somebody before Mises, uh, I think people were actually advocating that as a means of forced savings. Um, so it can happen that way. Um, but then I think you still have a problem of is it really going to be valid capital uh, you know, expenditures, investment, production, and so on? Or once things all sort out and the economy reestablishes itself, restabilizes itself, are those going to be shown to be distortions that are not sustainable? So, Because somebody could take inflated currency and invest it in what they think is a productive enterprise, but if, if they are only able to do it uh, because they've got the money burning a hole in their pocket, not because they actually have a business plan and they, they see a real consumer need, uh, that'll still amount to a kind of capital destruction, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. So we, we do see that in episodes of credit expansion. Um, and actually now there's a, they have this term called zombie companies. So these are companies that are not even making enough money to pay the interest on their debt. And yet they haven't gone bankrupt yet because they're still able to borrow more in this low interest rate environment. Um, so you know, eventually, I think that's going to hit the fan and those companies are going to go bankrupt, but they've been kept alive for you know, going on 10 years now because of the extremely low interest rates that the Federal Reserve has been pursuing. So let's take a step back to look at the bigger picture. And I want to again reflect on that essay by Rand, Egalitarianism and Inflation. What would you say uh, we've learned about economics since the time that she wrote the essay that speaks to the wisdom of, of what she told us there? Has, um, has the economy developed in such a way as uh, the principles she articulates would have predicted, given what the government has done? Uh, did anyone else predict what has happened uh, from a different theory? How would you say these come together? Yeah, I mean, I guess it depends who you mean by we. What have we learned? Um, so mainstream economics, I don't think, has really learned anything. So they, they're still on their same track. Um, but I think we are going to learn something in the not-too-distant future um, because there's been so many distortions built up over the last 10 years with this incredible you know, the extreme measures by the Federal Reserve of keeping rates at 0% for most of the last 10 years. Um, so we, this has sparked a lot of asset bubbles. Um, you know, in the, in the late nineties, we had the internet bubble, which was concentrated on internet stocks. And then when that crashed and the federal reserve 
lowered rates to 1%. Then we had the housing bubble, which culminated in 2008, and then we had the housing crash. Um, and then that led to the Fed to cut rates to 0%. And then we've had um, what are, people are now calling the everything bubble. So everything is at some of the most extreme valuations they've ever been. So the stock market is at extreme valuations. Uh, bond markets are at extreme valuations. Um, real estate is at extreme valuations. So you know, at some point, in my opinion, these are all going to have a horrific crash, worse than the 2008 crash, revealing the distortions caused by monetary policy, um, showing the capital consumption because you know everybody's going to feel a lot less wealthy and realize a lot of the spending they've done over the last 10 years was actually spending their capital, which now was lower. Um, so I think that will be a learning experience because economists will have to grapple with that. Why didn't we see this coming? What explains this? You know, what caused it? How did it happen? So there was some of that that happened in 2008 because no economists of the mainstream saw that crash happening. So that led to some reexamination, like why did we miss it? You know, what are we getting wrong? Um, there was actually one uh, prominent economist who wrote a, a paper, ill-timed in early 2008, uh, about the state of macroeconomics. And he said, the state of macroeconomics is great. You know, we, our models are great. We, we understand everything now. We explain things perfectly. And then, you know, less than a year later, we had this massive crash that economists couldn't explain. They didn't know where it came from. Um, so, but the question is, when, they, when this happens, what will they learn without questioning the theory, without questioning the foundations of the theory, without questioning their concepts the way Ayn Rand does? Are they really going to learn anything valuable or important? Are they going to be able to change their theories? Um, you know, in terms of the current situation, did anybody see it coming? I mean, there have been free market economists and Austrian economists who they've been predicting inflation for a while, um, ever since the Fed started doing quantitative easing. So, um, you know, to some extent, they could see that this was coming. Uh, Austrian economists, I guess, typically predict the distortions that happen when the Federal Reserve keeps rates low. So they, they definitely see that happening and that that's going to have to correct, causing a crash at some point. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, what we've learned, I think you know, probably not a lot at this point uh, in terms of the, you know, the mainstream economists, but I think it will be, as I mentioned, a big learning experience when, uh, when we get the next crash. Sobering thoughts, uh, but but food for thought for our audience to 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 chew on for themselves and to uh, help them do that. I I want to share some resources that we discussed today. Uh, we talked about Ayn Rand's essay "Egalitarianism and Inflation," which originally came out in the Ayn Rand letter in uh, between June and July of 1974. If you go to uh, bit.ly/tar uh, big T A R L letter. Uh, you can you can actually order a copy of that bound volume, uh, and uh, but I'll go back actually to the previous page because you can listen to the lecture version of this for free on ARI's website at bit.ly/egalinflate. That'll take you to her lecture of egalitarianism and inflation. The essay is also reprinted in her uh, collected. Uh, uh, in, in a collection called Philosophy Who Needs It, which uh, you, can, you can buy at uh, Amazon or the usual uh, bookstores. But I'd also like to share with you uh, an essay by Rob, which uh, 
also delves into the connection between philosophy and economics. This is his essay, Economic Theory and Conceptions of Value, Rand and the Austrians versus the Mainstream, which surely touches on some of the issues that we talked about today. Uh, this was in the Ayn Rand Society Philosophical Studies, Volume 3, which is called Foundations of a Free Society. That's edited by Greg Salmieri and Robert Mayhew. And uh, ARI is actually going to be uh, republishing this essay online on New Ideal, starting, I believe, in just a, a, a few weeks, or when this recording comes out, it might be coming out right around at that time. So we're looking forward to uh, reading that essay again, Rob. Thanks for sharing that with us. Thank you. If you enjoyed watching this episode today and you'd like to be able to follow us in the future, uh, if you're watching on YouTube, uh, please be sure to like the episode, uh, leave a comment, uh, and also to subscribe and hit the bell button if you'd like to get notifications when we uh, post more uh, of these recordings in the future. Same thing on Facebook, like it, share it, leave a comment. And if you have questions about anything that came up today, uh, or if you have suggestions for new topics that we might discuss on future episodes of the, our podcast, send those to newideal@einrand.org. We read all of the mail that comes in. We answer a lot of it. Uh, I want to thank you again, Rob, for this very enlightening conversation. I hope uh, it uh, helped people gain a better appreciation of the philosophic dimensions uh, of economics. Thank you, Ben. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.